Okay, welcome everyone to our second, the second episode of our Sutta study, where we will be continuing to study the Sabhasuva Sutta, the second Sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya. Uh, to recap, last time we finished uh, the first of seven methods by which one overcomes the taints and today hopefully we'll if all goes well we'll go we'll be able to finish up the other six uh, right well i thought uh, one thing i thought that if the, before we start we could do some kind of uh, I don't know if that would be difficult. Anyway, we can just do a little bit of chanting to open up, to open the session. Let's see if I can, just bear with me. You see from over there? You don't want to get on camera, I guess, right? <laughs> well, you'll put his on camera. I just noticed that. <laughs> All right. Ah, um, this Let's do it. Let's just no. Um, we don't have it there. That's not what I wanted then. Guess this will work. I guess we'll just do Nomotas uh, three times, so that's probably good enough. So to start off, we will we will do Nomotas. Okay, so Nomotas Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Okay, again, welcome everyone. Today we will be looking at the second half of the Sabhasuva Sutta. It's kind of deceiving because there's seven methods of overcoming the taints and we've only gotten through one of them um, but that actually does put us halfway through the sutta because as mentioned the first one is really the core essence of the practice whereas the other six are uh, whereas the other six are ancillary Okay, so without further ado, if you're looking for the text, I don't have the translation that I'm working with up because 
putting it up would potentially be violating someone's uh, belief of being able to copyright Buddhist texts. Uh, no, it would make people upset. So uh, to avoid problems, I've put up a different translation, one that is freely available on the internet. And to find it, you can go to radio.sirimongolo.org, which may be where some of you are finding this anyway. And I think if you scroll down to the bottom of radio.sirimongolo.org, you will find a link to access to Insight, the version of the sutta, which, uh, or one of the versions that's available free of charge. But you don't really need to because I'll, whenever I'm reading from the sutta, I'll try to go to the text on screen. So if you're watching the video, you should see. Wait a second. You should see this. And this is where we are in the text. This is the English, <coughs> the English translation of number two, starting at number two in the Sabhasu Sutta, the taints to be abandoned by restraining. So we've gone over the first one. If you missed it, you can go and review the video. It's on YouTube um, under on my channel. It's the Sutta Study Sabhasu Sutta Part 1. Now we're on to Part 2. So what I'll do is I'll just be reading through it. And if my panelists have questions or the local people have questions, you can ask them and I'll try to Oh, the, my my local audience is not here today. The, I usually have a room full of of people listening to the uh, and and participating in this study, but it being the uh, long weekend, as I understand, the, there, there's something called a long weekend where uh, normally people have this idea of working five days a week, but now they only work four or something like that. I don't really understand. As a monk, it's all confusing to me. I work every day, or or no day, depending how you look at it. I'm just joking. It's a long weekend, so I guess everyone knows what that means. And for some reason, that means that people can't come to the monastery. So I guess there's something against going to a monastery on a long weekend. Except now I have instead. I have uh, uh, we have a guest today. Uh, Rebecca is here to listen in. She's come all this way just to just to be here on her long weekend. So just goes to show that not everyone follows these rules of whatever they are. Honestly, I don't understand why why there isn't a group here. You'd think the long weekend would mean more people would be interested in coming for taking the time. Now that they have extra time, they'd put that extra time into studying the suttas, but it doesn't seem so. Okay, so here we are. The taints to be abandoned by restraining. And again, this, these are the ancillary means. So the core practice that we are following is the through, is through seeing. Dasana bahatava, through seeing things as they are. The most um, essential means of overcoming the taints is through seeing. Through seeing clearly the disadvantages of the taints, through seeing things clearly as they are, and not how we want them to be, so as not to give rise to taints, and so on and so on, through through seeing um, the essential as, as essential, the unessential as unessential, 
through seeing the impermanent as impermanent, through seeing the uh, stressful as stressful and the uncontrollable as uncontrollable, and so on. There's, we can go on and on about the things. Um, the sutta uh, is focused on 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 this idea of seeing suffering as suffering, seeing the origin, seeing suffering, seeing the origin of suffering, seeing the cessation of suffering and the way leading the cessation of suffering, as opposed to seeing, if we look at uh, up here, uh, here all this, was I in the past, shall I be in the future, am I now, and so on, and the views of self and so on that arise based on that. So basically the, the whole, it, it, it's discriminating between right view and wrong view or Yoni Somanasikara and Yoni Somanasikara, wise attention and unwise attention, focusing on things in the proper way and in the improper way, which is really the essence of the meditation practice of um, seeing things as they are instead of how we want them to be or, or projecting on them some idea of what we think they are or think they should be, simply seeing them as they are. Okay, but now we get on, the point being that there are, um, if, if we simply practice, simply undertake, solely undertake the practice of insight meditation, it's like a young tree uh, growing up alone, it's easily uh, bowled over or, or, or broken or, or, or destroyed by the, 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 the elements, the weather and, and, and uh, by animals and so on, so you need to protect it, you need to protect the growing uh, insight from uh, being destroyed by uh, the, the influence of all sorts of external things, external phenomena. First one being the senses. So what, what taints bhikkhus should be abandoned by restraining? Oh, he's going to give us a note here. Let's look at this first. Um, the f only the first and the last development is going to be bhavana bhadra, which is the last. Only these two are uh, actually affect the abandonment of the taints. So this is what I said earlier that actually the idea that there are seven types of taints that are abandoned in different ways is not really an accurate interpretation of the sutta. The, these are all just part of the practice, and really only the first and the last are those that cut off this. The, the, the defilements. The other five methods don't directly accomplish the destruction of the taints, but they can keep them under control during the preparatory stages of practice and thereby facilitate their eventual eradication by the supermundane path. Supermundane path. Supermundane path is the, the realization of nibbana or nirvana, which affects the, um, the abandonment of the taints uh, permanently, uh, piece by piece. Anyway. What taints bhikkhus should be abandoned by restraining? Here a bhikkhu, reflecting wisely, abides with the eye faculty restrained. While taints, vexation, and fever might arise in one who abides with the eye faculty unrestrained, there are no taints, vexation, or fever in one who abides with the eye faculty restrained. Note. The primary factor responsible for exercising this restraint over the sense faculties is mindfulness. A fuller formula is given in many other suttas and analyzed in detail uh, to figure out defilements, their karmic results. Um, it's not entirely mindfulness, actually. The, there are um, five forms of res restraint, and I've tried to go through them before, but I always keep I keep forgetting 
uh, one or another of them. The, the first one is uh, sila samwara, so guarding the senses based on uh, keeping morality, so keeping the precepts, not killing, not stealing, and so on. This is a means of guarding one's um, one's experience, so it keeps you from having to experience uh, extreme, uh, extreme, extremely intoxicating or enticing or addictive states, and uh, also in the sense of guarding based on a, a knowledge that you shouldn't. So when you see something attractive, you the, the looking down instead of instead of looking at it, or when you're walking down the street. When a monk walks down, walks in, into the village, this is why they're they're instructed to keep their their eyes down, because this is a means of restraining the senses, sort of a manual restraint. It doesn't get rid of the uh, desire, but it keeps the desire from from uh, building and overwhelming the, the the monk or the meditator. So, when for meditators, this is why we always also have them to try and. Not to look around, not to get caught up with the world. And in fact, it is a it's something that actually I don't maybe emphasize enough. But meditators would do well to um, to imitate the the actions of the monk, and when they're doing a meditation course, in terms of not uh, or keeping their eyes down when they're walking, keeping the eyes on the floor, and whatever they're doing, trying to focus their attention instead of allowing their gaze to wander. Uh, Vidya, I think, is another one. So through effort, through um, uh, guarding the senses through effort, mindfulness, uh, wisdom, uh, patience. I'm I'm reaching here. I'm not sure, but uh, mindfulness is is only an, a part of the the picture. But the point here is guarding the senses. So the um, the restraining means the restraining of the senses. Um, we're going to try to. Focus on the six senses of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, and thinking. Because if we're not clearly aware at the moment of seeing that this is seeing and hearing that this is hearing and so on, as the Buddha said, the taints, vexation, and fever, Barilaha probably is what he says there. Uh, this is the taints. Vinghata, which means vexation, and parilaha, which means fever. So it's, this is a um, actually a literary device or an oratory device that you that um, speakers will find themselves employing. It, it seems kind of strange sometimes why the Buddha repeated himself so often, but this is the um, this is something that 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 is is a technique that's used in in uh, oration. In order to drive the point home, you say the same thing a few times and it, it sinks into the person's psyche. And it's quite useful to understand exactly what we mean by the asava. These are the asava. What, what, what is the synonym for asava? Vexation or fever. The, these three together give you a really good idea of what we're talking about. We're talking about a mind state that is um, sick or unwell, unpleasant, uh, undesirable, where the mind is vexed and feverish. It really is this fever of sensual desire, this fever of uh, anger and hatred and, and aversion, and this fever of delusion and, and egotism and so on. These really are a fever, and of course we can all relate to this. When these things arise, they feel 
they, they, they upset both the body and the mind, and they can actually drive a person physically, physically ill, even to that extent. So one who abides with the eye faculty unrestrained, right, we already remember that, uh, right, well, well, they might have read for someone who's unrestrained, there are no taints, vexation, or fever in one who abides with the eye faculty restrained. We go over that? Yes. Reflecting wisely, he abides with the ear faculty restrained, with the nose faculty restrained, with the tongue faculty restrained, with the body faculty restrained, with the mind faculty restrained. Well, taints, vexation, and fever. And so these, these dots here just mean we're repeating the, 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 repeating the, whole, um, the whole clause for each of the six senses. But the ellipses are... are just to sign that, in order to save paper, we're not going to print them all out. Well, taints, vexation, and fever might arise in one who abides with the faculties unrestrained. There are no taints, vexation, or fever in one who abides with the, fac abides with the faculties restrained. These are called the taints that should be abandoned by restraint. Or, it's really actually, see, it's, it's, it's misleading to say these are the taints that should be abandoned by restraining it. it it's really just, um, it's a common... Uh, there's a common phrasing that we find in the Pali. Ime, these, uh, Ime, Ime, it is plural, no? Ime, Vuchanti, these are the ways, or these, these are the, um, uh, so, uh, well, I guess it is literal, a literal translation, but it doesn't mean it means these are the ways in which the asavas are uh, are destroyed or abandoned through uh, through restraint through restraint. It's a means of guarding one's practice. Again, this is this is probably one of the primary uh, methods. It's a, of the other six. It's perhaps the most important because it actually does tie in, as, as Bhikkhu Bodhi said, the translator of this and, and the person who makes his notes, uh, he says, as he says, um, the primary factor is mindfulness. Well, that really is, in some sense, um, an apt thing to say. Mindfulness is the key in restraining the senses. It's how, what ties this sense restraint into the meditation practice, whereas you can temporarily or, or uh, in a pinch, or, or you can try to moderate your attachment by not seeing things, you know, put blinders on, or as I said, when the monks are walking, to keep your, keep your eyes on your feet. But uh, the ultimate means of restraining the senses uh, that is sustainable, actually sustainable, and is sustainable even when you do see the object, of, an object of desire or aversion, is mindfulness. To see this, have the seeing just be what it is, and this is, of course, one of the famous uh, teachings of the Buddha that we read in, for example, the Bahiya Sutta, where the Buddha says, where, let seeing be just seeing. Whatever is seen, let it just be that which is seen. Whatever is heard, let it just be heard. Whatever is uh, felt, so that, or cognized, so that means... Uh, smelled, tasted, or, fe or felt on the body, let it just be that which is experienced. And vinyate vinyata matang bhavisati, whatever is cognized in the mind, let it just be that which is cognized. 
very clear um, summary of what exactly we're talking about in terms of dasana bhattava, um, seeing things as they are. So they tie in quite quite tightly or quite uh, um, quite well in the practice of meditation and the guarding of the senses. The senses, because the senses are actually one of the ways of understanding the objects of meditation. And it's one of the objects of meditation we give to meditators. When you see something, say to yourself, seeing, seeing, just remind yourself it's only seeing. Hearing, hearing, when someone's yelling at you even, hearing, hearing, just be aware of the sound. Smelling, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking, thinking. Very important part of the practice. Okay, number three, the taints to be abandoned by using. What taints bhikkhus should be abandoned by using? Daily reflections, yeah, so this, this is referring to the four requisites that monks are uh, asked to uh, reflect, uh, are, are to reflect upon it at every, every time that they use them. These are the robes, alms food, lodgings, and medicines. These are considered to be the four things that a monk, or, or let's say a human being even, requires for an ordinary life or a sustainable livelihood. Here a bhikkhu reflecting wisely uses the robe only for protection from cold, for protection from heat, for protection from contact with gadflies, mosquitoes, wind, the sun, and creeping things, and only for the purpose of concealing the private parts. So, right. Um, the, the, the key point here that the Buddha is making is it's not what it's not used for. So important, you don't, you don't have to sit there and think, yes, these clothes are to protect me, to conceal my private parts. That's not, it's not like a meditation. The point is that's all it's used for. It's not used for, um, for beautification or for comfort, for example. So you feel kind of uh, fuzzy and, and sil you know, wearing silk robes or something like that. Even though silk is allowed and there are monks who have silk robes, a little bit ridiculous. Um, protection from cold, protection from heat. I mean, the, the, the point isn't to reflect upon this and say, uh, this is why I'm using the robe. The point is that's all it's used. That's all it's for. And reminding yourself it's, it's, it's just a covering. And it's very good for things like heat and things like cold and mosquitoes. Wonderful. If you get thick robes like this that are made of this gene-like material, you can just put it over here and the mosquitoes don't get you. I can even sit outside when there's mosquitoes buzzing all around. Just put this over me and leave a little opening here and can do meditation quite well, even with lots of mosquitoes around. The wind, the sun, and creeping things, and only for the purpose of concealing the private parts. Uh, doesn't help so well with ticks, unfortunately. They're very good at getting into anything. But uh, ticks happen to be one of my favorite parasites. They're so inept. <laughs> It's amazing we've survived this long. Ainaga, I, I didn't sh make a shout out to our panel here. We have a panel now of three people, Bob, Aaron, and Naga. Thank you all for coming. And I certainly didn't mean to include you in the group of people who don't like coming to monasteries. I consider you to have come to the monastery in this way. You haven't come in, in the physical, but what's the physical? 
what good is the physical? You're here in mind and uh, even here in, in the physical in the sense of seeing and hearing this with us. So thank you all for coming today. I appreciate your presence. And uh, I'm sorry about Erin says she couldn't get a ride. If anybody needs a ride, let's uh, try to network here. There are people coming. If you ever want a ride, let me know. We can we can always try to work something out. Reflect, reflecting wisely, he uses alms food, neither for amusement nor for intoxication, nor for the sake of physical beauty and attractiveness, but only for the endurance and continuation of this body, for ending discomfort, for assisting the holy life, considering thus I shall terminate old feelings without arousing new feelings, and I shall be healthy and blameless and shall live in comfort. Right, so here, this is the only one I think that gets into the not side, what we don't use it for, right? Uh, here, there's four things. So we don't use the food for amusement, just to for kind of a, a escape from life or so on, or, or an entertainment. Right? We don't use food for intoxication. I think intoxication there means uh, in because of the strength and the energy, but it could also be because of the um, the chemicals in it. That actually food is it can be quite intoxicating, even ordinary food. So candy and sugar and chocolate and so on can be quite uh, intoxicating, and uh, has the potential to um, to create states of pleasure and and and, and addiction actually. Uh, which is why monks will often, everything they eat, they put it together in a bowl and mix it all up and uh, eat with their hands and try to be very mindful. There was even, there's, there was one, one monk in Thailand that I heard about. It was a little bit extreme, I think, but uh, I've mentioned this before. What he would have his, his students do is they would uh, they have, the, have their alms bowl and they'd have a lid to the alms bowl. They put the lid down beside the alms bowl. They mix all the food up in their bowl and then they're very mindful. They eat, taking one 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 um, lump at a time. So in Thailand, the, it might be sticky rice, and you can make a lump of the food or something. And they put it in their mouth, and then chewing, chewing, chewing. And if any liking for the food came up in their mind, they would spit the ball out into their hand, put it on the the lid of the alms bowl, and continue eating. And when they got done, they had to eat with all the food that was was in in, in the, on the lid. Uh, and this was a means of overcoming the attachment to the food. Right. So um, it's not for any of not for any of these things. What it is for is for the continuation, the endurance and continuation of the body, for ending discomfort based on because of hunger, for assisting the holy life. Um, because, of course, it's not easy to meditate when you're starving or, or weak. Considering, thus I shall terminate old feelings, the feelings of hunger, without arousing new feelings, the feelings of satiation or, or overeating, and the pain that comes from eating too much, or this feeling of, of fullness uh, that comes from eating too much, or from, from, from uh, eating. And in fact, you... Um, one thing that they recommend is to stop eating before you're satiated, before you feel like you've had enough, 
it's something that you actually learn as a medit learn as a meditator when you're eating only in the morning. You learn that uh, you learn much more clearly how much is just enough. You, you much easy more easily find your are, are able to tell the difference between eating too much and not enough, and you do find yourself stopping before you're full, knowing uh, actually the problem is that the, the full knowledge occurs in the brain. It takes a while for the knowledge to get from the stomach to the brain, and by the time it's got there, if you, f if you feel full before you stop eating, the, you're, you're actually too full because you've been eating after you were already full. So you learn you learn better to anticipate the sense of fullness that's going to come from the food that you've eaten, and shall live in comfort, be held blameless, shall be healthy because, of course, healthy food food is a source of disease if you misused, and blameless because you're not greedy or addicted or or slothful or, or lazy, and shall live in comfort because you don't have any of the problems of overeating or undereating. Reflecting wisely, he uses the resting place. Resting place means, uh, yeah, resting place is good. Means dwelling or whatever. For protection from cold, for protection from heat, for protection from contact with gadflies, mosquitoes, wind, sun, creeping things, and only for the purpose of warding off the perils of climate and for enjoying retreat. Retreat meaning seclusion, actually. I, would, I prefer seclusion there, but uh, same idea. So again, um, quite apt, of course, this is exactly what lodging is for. On the one hand, it's for protection, and from the other hand, on the other hand, it's for um, the cultivation of solitude and seclusion. And for, for the mo most part, um, dwelling places have these advantages of keeping off the mosquitoes. So you can do walking and sitting meditation in comfort and keeping off the heat and the cold and the wind and the sun. Point being again, what it's not for. It's not for having a place where you can go and hide and sleep when you should be meditating or a place where you can go and uh, watch television or, 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 or read or write or sing and dance or make a fool of yourself place where you so meditators when they come out of the room they're very mindful when they go back into the room uh, when they're alone then they go crazy and, and have no sense of mindfulness because of course no one's watching and so you don't feel a sense of uh, shame it's not for that it's not for it's not for two things it's not for the laziness and the indulgence our beds are not a place to, to indulge in sensual pleasures uh, even the, what I mean only here what I, only what I I only mean here the sensual pleasure of lying down. This is what I'm afraid because it actually is a sensual pleasure to lie down. Uh, it can be quite addictive. This lying or sleep it can be quite an addictive thing, and uh, it's deceiving actually because we think somehow it's healthy, it's good, and we've convinced ourselves that somehow this is a good thing. And people have this idea that that um, many sensual pleasures it's uh, positive, like sex is is good for your body and good for your health and sleep is good for your body and good for your health. I think I'd have to beg to differ on both counts, but there's something much more insidious here, and how, that's how bad it is for your mind. And, in, and it's something that you really have to experience for yourself to see how, how, how good it feels to be able to give up, to, to not be a slave to your desires, and to not be 
It's, we're some, it's somehow like we're, we're chained to this bed, and we can't escape it, and it's calling to us like a siren's call. And we find ourselves pulled again and again back to the bed, and pulled and pulled back again, and again to sensual pleasures like this. Food, sleep, sex, I think those are the two things, music, the three big ones, music, maybe all of these things were pulled back to. But uh, so a dwelling place can be quite dangerous in that way, in terms of making a person lazy. This is why the Buddha recommended we should stay under the foot of a tree. Spend your days and even your nights at the foot of a tree with the ticks and the mosquitoes is better for you than uh, staying in bed. I don't know about the ticks and mosquitoes part. If you find a place that's free from ticks, it's quite nice staying at the foot of a tree. Right. So anyway, this is what a kuti is for. Kuti's uh, huts would be good for keeping off these things and also for providing seclusion because when you're even at the root of a tree, if, it's, if there's people around, even then people will come up and disturb you. But if you have a kuti, people will tend to leave you alone and let you continue your meditation practice. You don't have to see or hear other people. You don't have to get involved with anything. So when we go to Thailand, there are these meditation centers with hundreds of people and, and crazy people and lots of crazy stuff going on. But they, have, they they figured out the technique of building lots and lots of kutis that are single dwellings, whereas many, many other meditation centers will have everyone stay together, but they'll emphasize a quiet environment and so on. We have the opposite here where you have just so many people in such chaos, but everyone has their own space that they can retreat to. And this is the... The blessing of, uh, of of having a kuti is feeling of bhakti also a sensual pleasure. Mm, bhakti can be. I mean, it just mean faith actually, right? Um, faith can be associated with with um, sensual pleasures. It can be. It, it, faith is indeterminate. In fact, it may even be wholesome. I'm not sure, but it can lead to unwholesomeness and it can lead to wholesomeness if you have faith in things that are um, the cause for insight then it encourages you to cultivate them if you have faith in meditation um, but uh, if you have faith in 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 the feelings like feelings of pleasure that come from bhakti for example then uh, if you have faith in those then it'll, it'll encourage you to seek them out and seek out those pleasant feelings and uh, yeah, even that can be an attachment. Even respect for, te for a teacher can uh, be a cause for attachment. Faith is, um, this is why we say, but has to be balanced with wisdom. If you have just faith and, and no wisdom, uh, then it, gives, it easily gives rise to anger, or to greed or anger. If you have lots of wisdom and not enough faith, of course, it gives rise to doubt, uncertainty, confusion. So you need faith, but faith can be good or bad. Depends what the object of your faith is. If the object of your faith is the teacher, this is one thing, but if the object of your faith is the uh, the feeling of faith, like you're so confident in your... or Well, let me put it, put it a better way. The confidence isn't the problem, but the feeling that comes with it uh, is a sensual, ple is a ple sensual pleasure. And that can be dangerous in terms of getting addicted to that. So you don't get addicted to the faith. You get addicted to the, 
to the feeling that comes with it, to the pleasant feeling. So something, I guess we have to discriminate here between sensual pleasures and sensual desires. Sensual desires are one thing, sensual pleasures are another. Sensual pleasures, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with a sensual pleasure. But the desire for those sensual pleasures, this is the problem. The pleasure is not something you can avoid. It, it's a physical thing. Um, but sensual desire, this is actually something different, which is an important uh, aspect of addiction therapy, to be able to separate. This is, I'm always harping on about it. There are, different, there are four different aspects of addiction. There's the experience. This is the seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. There is the feeling of happiness or calm or, or even aversion. There is the, then there's the liking or disliking of it. And then there are the views that this is good, this is worth liking, this is me, this is mine, and so on. All four of those you have to separate out and you have to break, break them apart to see that this is what's going on and to, to destroy the views and, and to see things see them clearly as just a phenomena that are rising and ceasing and to lose your um, desire from them. There's nothing intrinsically beneficial about them, that they're not permanent, they're not satisfying, and they're certainly not controllable. So getting emotional when someone teaches you something, this is, a, this is actually rapture. This we would call piti. And there's nothing wrong with that, but when you experience it, if you're not mindful of it, it gives rise first to wrong views, wrong thoughts, wrong perceptions, thinking this is me, this is mine, this is good, this is bad, and that in turn gives rise to liking and disliking, and that in turn gives rise to clinging and attachment and striving and suffering. So nothing wrong with faith, uh, but, it, but the object of the faith can be dangerous, or the, the reaction to it. Okay. Where we go? Okay. Uh, number four, reflecting wisely, he uses the medicinal requisites only for protection from arisen afflicting feelings and for the benefit of good health. So not abusing medicines uh, and trying to use them in moderation. I'm kind of um, I, I kind of under enthusiastic about this one because it, it's easy to abuse it, and you see often. In Asia, a lot of monks have gotten very accustomed to taking paracetamol because you see, um, whenever, when people read about these four records, everyone wants to bring them to monks. So they're always bringing medicines. But the, the people's idea of medicine is just go buy some paracetamol, Tylenol, and bring it to the monks. So the monks end up with these stashes and stash, bigger and bigger stashes of paracetamol. And it, it, you can only endure that for so long until you look at this and you think, hmm. Well, I've got a headache. Let's take one of those. And you've got a whole store of them, right? Some monks will wind up taking taking paracetamol like it's candy. And this is, of course, very, very dangerous both to the body and the mind and to the meditation practice as well. So you can't use this as an excuse and say, well, I have a pain, so I should take a medicine. Uh, it's certainly not what the Buddha had in mind. And I, I, I can guarantee that when he, when he thought about medicines, he certainly wasn't thinking of paracetamol. Um, he would be thinking about herbal medicines, which would have the, the ability to naturally and harmlessly support one's health, uh, as opposed to helping one avoid um, the feelings of suffering and so on, that, that actually are important to come to terms with, as opposed to avoiding. 
but the point is um, the benefit of good health because you don't want to you want to be able to continue your meditation and to 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 at least moderate the the, the pain and suffering that comes from disease and sickness so that you're not driven driven crazy by the, these un, uh, overwhelming experiences. And so while taints, vexation, and fever might arise in one who does not use the requisites thus, there are no taints, vexation, or fever in one who uses them thus. These are called the taints that should be abandoned by using. Well, that's, that's quite, we've already been over that, no? Taints to be abandoned by enduring. This is adiwasana. What taints bhikkhus should be abandoned by enduring? Here a bhikkhu reflecting wisely bears cold and heat, hunger and thirst, and contact with gadflies, mosquitoes, wind, the sun, and creeping things. We have this interesting, this interesting actually seems like a contradiction of what he just said above, where, where he, he explains that the requisites are the purpose of overcoming these things, or, or avoiding these things. Um, but uh, it, it only goes to show that that's not really what he's talking about. What he's saying in the last section is that's all they're for. So if, if, if you find it impossible to deal with mosquitoes, like if you're here in Winnipeg, you can't just say, well, let's put up with the mosquitoes. It's, you'll be, you'll become a, you'll be, you'll be uh, shriveled to a prune by the time they get done with you. You'll become a blood, do blood donor, donor 10 times over with the mosquitoes here. Uh, so, uh, so you, you do, in some sense, need this, and there are certain feelings that you it's very difficult to deal with, and the heat and the cold can actually drive you to sickness. But when it all comes down to it, this is much, this one is actually much more to the point and, and much more daring. And he said, Abhiku bears cold and heat, hunger and thirst, contact with gadflies, mosquitoes, wind, sun, creeping things. He endures ill-spoken, unwelcome words and arisen bodily feelings that are painful, racking, sharp, piercing, disagreeable, distressing, and menacing to life. Menacing to life is even actually not, not strong enough. Where we have this. Bana, bana haranang. Bana haranang means life taking. So not just menacing. Bana haranang. Hara means to take. That will take away his life. So life threatening, I think, is uh, that's basically what he's saying here. But uh, minas that could, could take away his life. That might even take away one's life. The Buddha says this. He says, this is how one overcomes, in some cases, overcomes uh, the taints. And, and this might be an, a, a skillful way of understanding the sutta as well, that um, in some cases, it's good to, to, to avoid these things, like when they're overwhelming, when they're driving you crazy. Like I remember when we were tree planting, I was doing tree planting up in northern Ontario, and uh, as a Buddhist meditator at this point, so I was trying to meditate, do, do walking meditation, but so quickly and so much work uh, to planting these trees. And um, I remember one time I, I, I was in order, so I was thinking, how do you avoid uh, killing mosquitoes? Because we're not just talking, you know, the mosquitoes in Winnipeg are actually pretty tame in comparison. Up in northern Ontario, uh, 
place, I think, so I haven't, I haven't maybe seen the worst of them, but in Northern Ontario, they come in swarms. Really, it was like black. You just see a black swarm of mosquitoes. So talk about uh, threatening to life. Um, and so I, in order to avoid them, I, I wore a full body mosquito net. Uh, I had a mosquito net that had arms and, and, and a hood. So I put a hat on underneath it and uh, a tilly hat or something and, and, uh, and this mosquito net and gloves. I could, no, I wasn't wearing gloves, but anyway, you don't need them because you're moving. <laughs> and uh, went like that. And one day I forgot this mosquito net. <laughs> I was like, oh, I forgot to pack my mosquito net. And uh, it was crazy. It really taught me to move quickly because you move quickly and, and you actually, um, when you, you, you plant the shovel into the ground, before you do it, you move it past your head to brush off the mosquitoes <laughs> and your shoulder. I was like moving my shoulder to brush off the mosquitoes. Uh, but anyway, the point of the story was there was a woman um, on our team and uh, everyone else was using like DEET, 30% DEET and like driving themselves crazy and the side effects of DEET are pretty fun. And uh, suddenly, uh, suddenly I heard this scream. I was doing my planting my trees in the, in the row next to me. I heard this scream, just a blood curdling scream. And so I ran through the, through the underbrush to find her and uh, uh, found that she had forgotten her mosquito repellent. And so I gave her some mosquito repellent or something like that. Uh, but it really, they, 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 to that extent of driving you crazy. So in those instances, a kuti might be a good idea for meditation. And uh, I remember I would do walking meditation. I'd wear my mosquito net and big thick gloves and boots. And I could actually do walking meditation outside. Yeah, stepping, right, or lifting, moving, placing, and so on. And you got the sound of mosquitoes buzzing like, like bees. And then for sitting meditation, of course, I'd go into my tent. I had a little tent that I could sit in and uh, do sitting meditation. Now, one night, um, I got up to go use the the tree and uh, forgot to close my tent. I unzipped the tent, got out, and forgot to close it up. And by the time I came back, my tent was full of mosquitoes. And so I zipped up the tent, and then I realized, oh, they're all in here. And so I had to take this little cup and like one by one catch the mosquitoes. And I had like a hundred mosquitoes getting them out of my tent. Um, right. But uh, once you get them out, it's, 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 it's lots of fun when you hear the mosquitoes buzzing around you and you know that they can't get to you. We have this little pop-up mosquito tent and they're quite useful. Um, but yeah, so in, in different cases, it can be useful. Uh, and and so, so on the one, on the one hand, it's, it's a difference of degree. If it's really really too much, then you have to be skillful and understand I have to avoid, which we'll see down below. There are certain things you actually should avoid. Um, but it can also be in terms of skill level. So a beginner meditator would be hard-pressed to endure the same things that an advanced meditator should be expected to endure. So for beginner meditators, it's much more useful to have things like kutis and and good food and medicines and so on. But for an advanced meditator, they should never, you should never think that, that, um, that you can rely on these things. You should focus more on the um, hardcore teachings that we have here, that even if it's going to take away your life, you put up with it. Uh, and, and of course, this applies most aptly to, to situations where you can't avoid these things. 
So uh, in certain instances, especially as a monk or a meditator, there are situations where you just can't avoid these. There are times where I've had no food to eat, or certainly many times where I've had not enough food to eat. But then you think, well, what's not enough? I mean, not enough for what? And so then you realize that it's just a matter of degree, and, and hunger is just hunger, and so you deal with it. And this is where, right, dealing with hunger, dealing with thirst, dealing with mosquitoes. I remember sitting outside meditating once, way back when, before I realized that mosquitoes in Asia carry malaria. And I was sitting out meditating, and all these mosquitoes landed on me. And it was just such a relief to let them land on me. I've been told to meditate outside, and stupid me, I went and meditated right by this uh, ditch or in the, in, the, and in the shade. And I sat down, and I was like, well, I can do this. And I sat, and then zzzz, <laughs> the first mosquito lands, and I started tensing up and shaking. This is because, of course, I just, I'm, this was actually when, when I did my first meditation course. I'm fresh out of uh, you know, a life of, of killing a mosquito as soon as you hear it, as soon as it lands on you, or even before it lands on you. And so here I'm, you can feel it landing on your shoulder, and then you hear, feel the pin prick. And then another one, and about five of them landing on my head and my shoulders. And then finally, as I start, I, I, I persisted and was mindful of it, and just such a relief came over me. I'll never forget that. How much of a relief it was to just let go, to no longer be afraid or concerned or be upset, and just let go of this uh, irrational dislike, aversion towards things that are not really that harmful, except for the whole malaria thing, which kind of turned me off that in the future. And of course, now that I've had dengue, I think, me, I'll... Uh, Leave the bravado to others. Psychoactive medication fall under the category of treating arisen affective feelings. Would this be considered simple avoidance of the unwanted condition? Psychoactive drugs. Um, not necessarily. I mean, it, it potentially, depending on the severity of the condition, again, these are supposed to be stopgap measures. They're not going to cure anything. Psychoactive drugs, drugs especially, have several serious problems with them. The first and most pressing is that they're using a physical, uh, a physical means to overcoming a mental condition, which is a bit of a no-no, a bit of a barking up the wrong tree kind of situation. Uh, there was a, uh, who was it? Uh, What's his name? Richardson? David no, David Richardson? Why does that make what is that say? Anyway, this guy who's who's working on plugging monks into fMRIs and stuff. He's I think he was the one who said it's a lot like um opening up the hood of your car and dumping motor oil all over the engine block. When you run out of oil, you think, oh I'm gonna put some oil in my car, and so you pour motor oil all over the engine block. That's kind of what these, these psychoactive drugs are like because the brain isn't just a, uh, it isn't binary. It's not like on and off. It's, it's incredibly complex and it's made up of different parts that work together. And, you know, even just to see it requires very, it requires several or a complex framework of, of, of parts of the brain. Every experience requires, uh, a, um, a complex uh, 
combination of experiences uh, of, of, of states in the brain um, but more so it's 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 entirely physical so even if you could pinpoint the problem in the brain you still would only be dealing with a shadow of the mind see the, the brain is 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 really um, only it's it, it's it's only um, what's the word parallels the mind it doesn't equal the mind correlate it's correlated with the mind but it's much more simplified or, or it's it's different in nature the mind affects the brain and the brain affects the mind but they are not equal so you can affect the mind by affecting the brain um, but you can't fix the mind by fixing the brain they're, they're they're two different things they're not they're not equal so you have you have this intrinsic problem with them now that would be a that would be acceptable if you could find drugs that actually did as i say um, help them help the brain yeah, so do something good for the brain if you can find drugs that psychoactive drugs that uh, they're not even really psychoactive but the same brain uh, stimulants or so on like ssris uh, and so on that inhibit the uptake of serotonin or neoprenephrine or whatever these are um, if, if these things actually did benefit the mind then you could say well in certain cases they would be useful uh, in in order to moderate and allow one to slowly come to terms with the condition now the the only problem with that is the other problem with psychoactive drugs is there's no clear indication that they actually work. If you've done any research on these drugs, the first thing, of course, that everyone knows is that they have uh, horrible side effects. We're talking antidepressants. I mean, antipsychotics are in another category, and well, I'd still argue that they could be approached in the same way. Um, it's much more severe, and unless you're a really talented meditation teacher um, and the student has some latent uh, potential that it just isn't showing up uh, it'd be much more difficult to help them overcome that condition but dealing with antidepressants anti-anxiety anti-anxiety uh, medications on is um, let's just stick to that for now uh, if you've done so the first one is that these have incredible side effects and some of these side effects are like suicidal tendencies and, uh, and I guess insomnia is a big one and so on, et cetera, et cetera. There's, the different drugs have different uh, side effects both physically and mentally. Uh, but the other thing that you learn if you do a little bit of research is the placebo effect. They've done these studies that you may be familiar with where they compare placebos, inert drug, inert pills, with um, uh, the active uh, psychoactive drug like um, you know, Prozac or uh, what's, the, what's the Paxil. Uh, and they find that there, there's only a little bit of different, they found that there's only a little bit of benefit comparative benefit to the actual drugs. Placebos have nearly almost the same benefit or a significant, uh, significantly comparable benefit to the active drugs. So then you think, well, okay, but at least they are helping. 
at least these drugs are a little bit better. So there's a sign that there's something there. But then they thought, well, but wait. Um, see, the thing about these drugs is that, remember, they have these horrible side effects. So if you give someone an inert, if you give someone sugar, sugar pills, and then you give someone uh, a, a, a SSRI or a, a psychoactive drug, uh, it's pretty easy to tell which one you're taking because the psychoactive drugs the drugs cause things like um, dryness in the throat, uh, they can cause headaches, I think, and of course the, the suicidal tendencies, the weight gain, as you say, lots of crazy stuff. Um, so they say, well, what if we give people inert pills that induce side effects? So they don't actually affect the mind, but they cause a dry throat and maybe even headaches or whatever, they, they have some upsetting, some potential to upset the body and give the impression that you're actually taking something strong. And when they did that, they found no difference in the effectiveness of the active drugs and the inactive drugs. There's a study has been done on this. Um, from my own uh, anecdotal observation, it seems to me that, that these drugs, from what I've seen, these drugs are not, um, not hitting the cause. They're, doing, they're, they're triggering some, something else in the brain that is distracting the person enough so that they don't actually have to deal with their uh, experience. Sometimes they just bring a sense of euphoria, it seems. Like, I haven't taken these drugs. They just bring uh, sedation. Um, they they put the person in a state so that they don't have to deal with the situation. Now this is dangerous. This is obviously not what we want to do as Buddhists. I would be willing to guarantee that the average person taking these medications, that I could um, quote-unquote heal, and I'm not afraid to say that because to me it's a fairly simple thing to bring someone back to a state of nor normalcy. It's a much more difficult thing to bring someone to a state of enlightenment. But if we're talking about just getting someone out of profound depression, so that, that, that I could pretty much guarantee if someone put them under my care, themselves under my care and, and took themselves off the drugs uh, safely and then came and, and put themselves under my care, that, that we could do a much better job uh, across the board that anyone who came could... I, I, from any situation, could do a much better job with meditation and I would say pretty much guarantee. Yeah, I wouldn't want to say guarantee because um, there are other, based on factors. For some people, it's just they, they don't have the requisite uh, potential. Um, guarantee some sort of more normalcy to bring people back to a state where they were just an ordinary person and would be capable then of cultivating um, proper meditation and understanding in in very little time. Now the, the what seems to, and this is all anecdotally, what seems to inhibit that or make that more difficult is the addiction to these drugs. Uh, the addiction to the sense of euphoria, the sedation, the numbness, the not needing to feel, uh, the safety, the security of the pills the security of this numbness and so on, comfortably numb, as they say, right? Much easier. So uh, that seems to get in the way, even with meditation, because you'll be 
encouraging people to practice meditation, and they'll be subconsciously there's this idea: well, what's the point? All I have to do is take the pill. You know, there's no. It's like the Jesus effect. I just coined that just now. Christians, some Christians have a very difficult time practicing meditation because they have this. They seem to, from what I've seen, have this subconscious uh, f certainty in them that they've already got the solution. Um, so the idea that you have to you have to meditate. You have to, they're like, but all I have to do is believe in Jesus, and I go to heaven. You know, but what do you have? What could you possibly have for me? I've already got the solution. Uh, I think it's probably a little bit similar to that, or it seems to be quite similar to that in, in the sense that you have to really want to get off the drugs and you have to be determined to get off them and you, you have to really see that they're not an answer uh, and, and be willing to fight with that, um, that belief or that, no, that, that, that subconscious feeling of, of security, of safety. I think that's much more uh, problematic our need to cure things, fix things quickly, and find a quick solution, a quick fix. That's much more dangerous than the actual depression and, and, and the actual problem like insomnia or anxiety or depression and so on. So uh, that's a little, not exactly answering your question directly, but it, it's certainly on the, uh, you're welcome, certainly not uh, out of, out of the, uh, the scope of it. Um, I would, I would actually, to, to bluntly answer your question or to simply answer it, I would be willing to uh, mm, suggest or what's the word? Suggest. Um, suggest, I guess, that um, it could be one could one could hold the position that it is wrong for a meditator to take these things, that it would be considered to be an intoxicating drug. Uh, I'm not going to come out and say that and say I believe, but uh, I'm suspicious that you couldn't compare psychoactive drugs to, say, Tylenol. Whereas a Tylenol, you could say, okay, in extreme cases of pain, it's worth taking. Um, I just don't get that feeling with psychoactive drugs from a Buddhist point of view, because it's, as I was just explaining, it's very much the opposite of what we're trying to do. So very much I would recommend, please, uh, the people who are on these things, find a way to uh, get off them and, and, and switch to medita meditation. It's only one letter, no? <laughs> C to T, and you've got, it's very simple, very easy. Just switch one letter and you've got the right answer. Medication to meditation. Right, so. Yeah, guidance and a teacher is very important. Maybe not even just a teacher, but support in the sense of having a meditation center or meditation group in the case where you don't have a teacher, as long as if you have the support. Uh, well, no, it's true. Um, teacher is invaluable. Right, so while taints, vexation, and fever might arise in one who does not endure such things, there are no taints, vexation, or fever in one who endures them. These are the taint called the taints that should be prevented by enduring. So what are the taints that arise? Well, there's the taint of uh, aversion would be the big one, I would say, because this is, this isn't talking about, this is talking about patience. 
which is the opposite of aversion. So this sort of vexation, this fever that comes from constant annoyance and inability to cope with uh, difficult situations is a huge part of the problem. Right? If we could only cope and bear and endure the things that we dislike, um, if they didn't bother us, then really the, the whole of our life, the whole world would suddenly become a, a playground. There would be no suffering left. Suffering only comes from aversion. So by enduring and by coming to see these things as they are and, and giving up this need or this belief in running away and avoiding, if we were able to do this, we would have absolutely no suffering. abandoned by avoiding. And so here we see but, and the Buddha is cutting us off when we start to think, but, what about, what about, what about, and the Buddha says, well, what taints bhikkhus should be abandoned by avoiding? Here a bhikkhu reflecting wildly avoids a wild elephant, sensible, a wild horse, a wild bull, a wild dog, a snake, a stump, a bramble patch, a chasm, a cliff, a cesspit, a sewer. <laughs> the point is here, if, if you're walking through the forest and you see a raging elephant, you don't say, well, it would have taught us to endure, so... Hello, elephant. No. Uh, wild horse, wild bull, wild dog, a snake, a stump, a bramble patch. Bramble patch. So when you're walking in the forest and you see the bramble patch, you say, meh, just go right through it. No, this is not the correct response. Unless uh, you're surrounded by bramble patches. I remember being up on a mountain once and I got very, very lost. And it was the most embarrassing, one of the most embarrassing moments of my monk life, getting lost uh, up on the mountain in the middle of nowhere, like really in the, the boonies. The boonies of the boonies, it was just the absolute. The people up there, uh, were, it, it was it was like something out of deliverance, really. <laughs> and uh, I was up on, the, up on this mountain, and I'd gone wandering through the forest. And then the sun went down, and, and I, I realized, oh, you know, because all my coordinate, coordination was based on the sun. And so at first I knew, okay, the sun was over there. But then when you get turned around, it's amazing how quickly you can forget and start asking you, Asking yourself, no, is the sun over there? Or was it over there? And which way is west? Which way is west? And then you get turned around. And then I started following the cows. I heard the cows and I thought, aha, you know, this saying, until the cows come home, right? And so you think, well, okay, I'll follow the cows until the cows go home. And I followed them and followed them. And I was like, I thought, well, they're not really going home. So I started like chasing them and saying, go home, go home. And then they started following me. It was the weirdest thing. <laughs> like, oh, these cows aren't going home. And uh, and then finally, like at eleven thirty at night, I saw them. Then I saw the moon come up, and the moon come up, and I remembered the moon last night came up in the east. And I don't know much about moons, whether they're like suns, but I figured the probably it's gonna come. It came up in the east again today, tonight. So then I kind of had a sense, and I was kind of going, but I still wasn't sure. And so finally I sat down, and then I heard gunshots. <laughs> Deliverance, no? I mean, if you've ever seen the movie Deliverance, you'll know how I felt at that moment. And uh, actually you won't, because you know what I thought? I thought, gunshots, that means a person. And I started walking towards them and holding up my phone. I had this little mobile phone 
that I was using as a flashlight, and I was holding it up. Like, hey, hey, don't kill me, don't shoot me. And uh, found this poacher, one of these people who was off poaching, doing his night hunting, killing pheasants or whatever. And uh, he almost shot me, I think. And he was so scared, he thought I was a ghost or, or a police officer or something. And he's like, Venerable, what are you doing out here in the middle of the night? I'm like, oh, I got lost. He gave me some water. And I just laughing crazy. I was, I was, <laughs> was quite, uh, quite perturbed at that point. The funny thing was, when I was mindful, when I was walking mindfully, it was quite easy. And, and suddenly I found my way again. But as soon as I started getting worried and, and upset, suddenly I, I lost my way. It was really interesting. Mindfulness really does have power in, in so many, so many uh, realms or so many aspects of life. Uh, even, to, even to that extent where suddenly I knew where I was and suddenly I was on track. But then I was like, I got worried. Oh, I'm gonna, what am I going to do if I don't get back? I'll be out here and I'll die out here or something like that. A real test of, uh, of mindfulness that I think I kind of failed embarrassingly. But you know, should have seen that was just talk about thorns because um, I was wearing sandals and in the forest there were these neat little the trees had this cute cute habit of dropping uh, porcupines on the uh, porcupine trees or something and these there were these little little fruits which were so cute and, and adorned with needles right and they would stick into your feet and break off and then you've got these little thorns. And I had like, I remember I was picking them out of my hands and my feet for literally for weeks afterwards. Because suddenly you feel, oh, there's something. And then you look down, oh yeah, there's still another on the tip of this porcupine needle. Uh, and anyway, this guy, he told me, he said, how do I get back to the village? He said, oh, go down into the ravine and follow the ravine, follow the water back to the village, quite, quite simply. And... Uh, and it turned out not. It turned out to be quite simple, but incredibly painful because, of course, the bottom of the ravine was where all the bramble bushes are, and my phone was dying. And it was. It wasn't a flashlight. It was just the screen of this little Nokia phone. And I was looking. Is that is that the path? And as soon as you got off the path, you were into the brambles, and and I had scratches all up and down. I I've still got a scar from a, uh, a stick that went all the way through, almost all the way through my hand. And I just pulled the stick, and <laughs> put my hand on it and compress it and keep walking. Oh, this was horrible. My, there was a huge infection in there and I was pumping the pus and stuff. But anyway, um, point being that uh, sometimes it's, a, there's a, it's hard to determine where you should avoid and where you should, uh, what you should endure. That was a bit, a bit of a silly story, but. Maybe it wasn't really related. Anyway, for the most part, if you can, obviously you try to avoid bramble bushes. Cesspit, sewers, yes, yes, avoid all these things. The Buddha's pointing out, he's defending himself from the attack that people would say the Buddha just tells, people would misunderstand and think that the Buddha was saying, just endure everything, which is certainly not true. Avoid sitting on unsuitable seats, wandering to unsuitable resorts, very important. Monks should not go to bars or brothels or um, what else? Concerts. Unsuitable seats are the two kinds mentioned in the Padimokha. Right, unsuitable seats, so they're not, it's not exactly what you would think. It would be sitting with a woman in a screen seat, convenient for sexual intercourse. 
and sitting alone with a woman in a private place. Various kinds of unsuitable resorts are mentioned at Visuddhimagga 145. Can't remember that being in the Visuddhimagga, but I'll take his word for it. The unsuitable resorts, I think there's six of them, um, and those have to do with people, unsuitable people, like uh, prostitutes and um, can't remember, drunks and so on, I think, I can't remember. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Associating with bad friends, uh, since if he were to do so, wise companions in the holy life might suspect him of evil conduct. Yes, if you hang out with bad people, people will expect it will will think bad of you. While taints, vexation, and fever might arise in one who does not avoid these things, there are no taints, vexation, and fever in one who avoids them. These are called the taints that should be abandoned by avoiding. Taints to be abandoned by removing. What taints bhikkhus should be abandoned by removing? What is this one? This is uh, Vinodana. Here a bhikkhu reflecting wisely does not tolerate an arisen thought of sensual desire. He abandons it, removes it, does away with it, and annihilates it. He does not tolerate an arisen thought of ill will. He does not tolerate an arisen thought of cruelty. He does not tolerate arisen, evil, unwholesome states. He abandons them, removes them, does away with them, and annihilates them. The first three types of unwholesome thought constitute wrong thought or wrong intention, the opposite of the second factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. The three types of wrong thought and their opposites are dealt with more fully elsewhere. MN19, maybe we'll look at that one later. You want me to write a book on my stories? Oh yeah, my stories. I, I thought you were thinking of the Dhammapada stories. Oh, come on. I'm only 34. It's not time to write a biography yet, autobiography yet. Maybe when I'm 60, get back to me. 80, maybe. My teacher, he said, uh, they asked him to tell his story, and he said, a bell doesn't ring itself. But he did, he did actually tell his story, uh, but he didn't want to. Well, right, so um, this, this is, seems to be, again, in, on one level, it's... it's uh, did, I, did I switch to that? Did you get to read that, or did I forget to switch back to the text? Probably I forgot to. Anyway, um, these three types of thoughts are, um, in some sense, identical with the meditation, but on another level here, we're dealing with the, the uh, potential to be pulled away from the meditation by these sorts of thoughts. So cravings for sensuality or um, ill will towards people, the, the, these common sorts of positive and negative emotions or, or uh, attractive or unattractive um, States and, and the thoughts that are based on the, the discursive thinking that goes on. So the, the admission that these are, are um, are, are a potential, 
catalyst for for taking someone away from the practice being caught up by sensuality caught up with ill will caught up with cruelty or um, yeah cruelty i guess is the answer here Um, because once you get caught up in these things, or thinking about someone you don't like and getting caught up in, in your anger and your aversion towards them, obviously it's taking you out of the meditation. So this is an, just a reminder of one of those aspects of life that takes you away from the meditation, our fantasizing, thinking about things that we want and, 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 and creating all these wishes and desires and fantasies and so on. Obviously at that time you're not meditating, so this is something that takes you out of a state of mindful observation. So the Buddha said, to, reminded us to, and here I'll try to go back to the text, not sure if I got it the first time, uh, he does not tolerate them, he abandons them, he removes them, does away with them, and annihilates them. Now, like the Pali, so I'm going to Ida bikkuvi bikku patisangha yoni so upannang kama bitakkang nadiva seti pajahati vinodeti bhyanti karoti anabhavangameti. We do this chanting. This is also in the uh, in the Girimananda Sutta. And I can't remember which one the Pahana Sanya, I think. Nadivasetipajati that's kind of an attachment, isn't it? You have to be careful. There. But the Buddha's the Pali. This is why we we like to learn the Pali. It's it's got a real uh, uh, wonderful, beautiful quality to it. So not much to say there. Just to be careful because it is kind of outside the practice. It's it's this reminder of not to get caught up in thinking some another thing that protect to protect our practice to be abandoned by developing and this is the final one and here we're talking about uh, the seven uh, bojangas which are a whereas the first the first um, of the seven uh, parts of the Sabasava Sutta was referring to uh, sort of a static description of the practice. This one is referring to the progress. So let's read it first. What taints bhikkhus should be abandoned by developing? Here a bhikkhu reflecting wisely develops the mindfulness enlightenment factor, which is supported by the seclusion, dispassion, and cessation, and ripens in relinquishment. He develops the investigation of states enlightenment factor, the energy enlightenment factor, the rapture enlightenment factor, the tranquility enlightenment factor, the concentration enlightenment factor, the equanimity enlightenment factor, which are supported by seclusion, dispassion, and cessation, and ripen in relinquishment. Whoa, seven, eight. Um, 
the terms seclusion, dispassion, and cessation may all be understood as referring to Nibbana. The enlightenment factor is directed to Nibbana as its goal, or Nirvana as its goal. Osaga has two meanings of giving up, uh, abandonment of defilements, and entering into culminating in Nibbana. nibbana. Right, so this one um, deserves a little bit of explanation. We have these seven enlightenment factors, and I'm going to turn that off because uh, I'm going to describe them my, my own way and even translate them maybe a little differently. But um, one way of understanding these seven factors is working in um, sequence, because of course it all starts with mindfulness, and none of the other factors are going to get anywhere without beginning based on, without a beginning based on mindfulness. You can have energy, or you can have investigation, or you can have uh, tranquility. You can have all these states, but if you don't have mindfulness to back it up, there's no rudder board. There's nothing to keep it on track, heading towards, as Bhikkhu Bodhi says, Nibbāna, or as the Buddha said, ripening and relinquishment, which is uh, Nibbāna or Nirvana. So through mindfulness, through objective observation of things as they are, one begins to give rise to what is called Dhammavitya, which he renders here as investigation of states. Um, it kind of means the, the discrimination or the wisdom that arises. It should actually be equated, I think, with, if I'm not mistaken, with wisdom. So based on mindfulness, there arises wisdom. There arises an understanding of the things that you thought to be permanent, satisfying, and controllable that they're not permanent, they're not satisfying, they're not controllable, they're impermanent, unsatisfying, uncontrollable. Seeing that they're not worth clinging to, the things that you clung to, that they're not worth clinging to, becoming bored, dispassionate, uninterested, and letting go of these things. So that pretty much sums up the practice in and of itself. That's sort of what we're talking about in the first, the static description of the practice. But then here he's talking about how it develops. So based on this wisdom, it gives you effort, and your mindfulness becomes stronger. You know, effort arises based on seeing things as they are, and the encouragement and the confidence that comes from um, positive realizations or, or um, positive changes through the practice. Based on the effort, well, that's virya, virya sambo janga, virya sambo jango, virya. Sati Sambo I think it's an O. Sambo Janko Bojanga, maybe it's feminine, I can't remember. Bojanga, I think. Um, so, based on Viriya, this effort, because of the effort arising, then there arise is rapture. Rapture here, Piti, which uh, means some kind of a um, sticky quality. So, based on, on the effort and putting out effort, the next thing to arise or the next stage of development is once the effort becomes repetitive, it becomes habitual and it becomes rapturous. Rapture here, it's kind of misleading. It, it's kind of how you like getting in a rut or, or getting into a habit of something. So, um, for example, you might find yourself shaking or, or, or leaning over in, in meditation and, and maybe you find yourself because of the pain or something bending or stretching or so on. That's not rapture, but if you do it enough and it becomes repetitive, eventually you find yourself rocking. And it becomes this 
this happened to me once when I was doing my first meditation course. I started shaking back and forth, and I thought it was really neat. And I was like, oh, this is cool. It's much nicer than what I was doing before. And uh, got caught up in it. Uh, so that kind of rapture can actually be a cause for uh, getting getting off track. But here we're, we're referring to this this uh, concept or this this idea of something becoming habitual. So the practice itself becomes uh, rapturous or it becomes effortless. This is the the concept here of iti of one be of it becoming um, habitual and and ingrained and based on piti based on that arising there arises tranquility one begins to calm down because of course at that point that it's like a narrowing of one's um, one's uh, one's observation or one's one's uh, field of awareness and so one begins to calm down there's less confusion less disruption kind of like um, when one begins riding a bicycle and wobbling back and forth, when one starts up the bicycle, it kind of wobbles. But once you get the bicycle going, it becomes, because of the speed and because of the the uh, inertia, it, it becomes perfectly still. And, and this is what gives rise to this ability to lean without falling over and, and steer the bicycle. Uh, so, so it's kind of like in the beginning, you're, you're knocking back and forth and you're... you're not yet in your groove, but once you get in the groove, it, it takes on a life of its own and it become, the mind becomes tranquil and, and fixed. So in the beginning, just like the bicycle, it's kind of chaotic. Eventually it becomes, once you continue, it becomes quite smooth and this tranquility uh, arises. Based on tranquility, there arises samadhis. So the mind becomes focused and it becomes clear more clearly able again remembering base remember this is based back on mindfulness so one's mindfulness becomes more focused and one is clearly aware of everything as it arises one begins to see things arising ceasing arising ceasing and is able to catch everything catch up the emotions and see them as they are catch up the thoughts see them arising and ceasing catch up the feelings and that in turn leads to equanimity equanimity uh, because of the the mindfulness leading to more wisdom and, and greater and greater wisdom eventually one sees that everything is simply arising and ceasing that there's nothing that's objectively worth liking disliking or clinging to in any way and uh, this is um, this gives rise to equanimity seeing things just things seeing things with equanimity equal you know uh, everything as equal to everything else without partiality. What is middle way? Well, this is the middle way, what we're talking about. In, in some sense, that's basically what we're talking about here is one description of the middle way. But uh, middle, the word middle, which which surprisingly people people find, are surprised by this. Um, mid, the word middle isn't used that often to describe the Buddha's path. It was just something that he used on his first discourse, and he used a couple of other times, but not something that was used um, to describe you know, a core concept. 
the middle way was used in different instances. You know, he said in some cases people go to this extreme, some people go to this extreme. He said, I don't go to either extreme. So, for example, the extreme of free will or the extreme of determinism, the extreme of um, there is a self, there is no self, that kind of thing. Or I don't remember. There, there are several um, metaphysical questions where the Buddha didn't take a stance either way. But most famously, it refers to the torturing of oneself versus the indulgence of sensual pleasures, because this was a belief in India at the time that you either indulged in sensual pleasures or you tortured yourself one way or the other. And you chose between the two. The Buddha pointed out that this is a false dichotomy, and he pointed out a third option. That's really all the middle way, the word middle meant. But it is also a way of referring to the Eightfold Noble Path, which is basically... This is just another way of talking about the Eightfold Noble Path. So based on equanimity, then there arises... Equanimity is the, the summum bonum of... or the, not the summum, the consummation of vipassana. Insight meditation, the highest knowledge in insight meditation... Um, no, that's not true. Um, practically speaking, the highest state of knowledge in vipassana meditation is... Sankarupekanyana, where a person, be, where the meditator becomes equanimous towards all things. It's not a sense of calm, but it's a sense of equanimity, where you see something as something. Everything is just something. It's just something arising and ceasing, and you've stopped trying to mess with the world. You've stopped trying to find happiness or satisfaction in the world outside, and the mind becomes perfectly at ease, uh, irrespective of the experiences. Right, so that deals with the seven bojanga. They go in that order. They can be seen to go in that order. The Buddha doesn't say that, so I just want to say, well, that's one way of understanding it. It may not be the only way of understanding it, and you can understand these as arising together. In some sense, of course, they do arise together, but they kind of have to start from mindfulness, and it seems proper to suggest that they kind of arise in that order. I think it's proper to suggest. Anyway, Deacon Bodhi gives a note here. Let's read this. This is important. So the, referring to these taints that are abandoned, so the taint of sensual desire is eradicated by the path of non-returning, the taints of being and ignorance only by the final path, that of arahanship. So again, this is a canonical sort of uh, reminder of technically when these different taints are abandoned. But the point, practically speaking, is that they're abandoned as you practice. Through the practice, you're able to overcome sensual desire, um, becoming a being, the desire to be this and be that, and uh, ignorance? What do we do? Yeah, ignorance. And ignorance uh, taints that arise out of simply being ignorant. Conclusion. Bhikkhus, when for a bhikkhu the taints that should be abandoned by seeing have been abandoned by seeing, when the taints that should be abandoned by restraining have been abandoned by restraining, when the taints that should be abandoned by using have been abandoned by using, when the taints that should be abandoned by enduring have been abandoned by enduring, when the taints that should be abandoned by avoiding have been abandoned by avoiding, when the taints that should be abandoned by removing have been abandoned by removing, when the taints that should be abandoned by developing have been abandoned by developing, then he is called a bhikkhu who dwells restrained with the restraint of all the taints. 
or in regards to all the taints. He has severed craving, flung off the fetters, and with the complete penetration of conceit, he has made an end to suffering. Let's read the Pali first, because that's got to be a good one for us to remember. Ayang uchati bhikkhavi bhikkhu sambhasava sangvara sangutto viharati achechati achechati tanhang vivatai sangyojanang sammamanabhis samaya samaya antamakasi dukkasa antamakasi dukkasa has made an end to suffering this is a good one to remember what do you call someone who's become enlightened antamakasi dukkasa has made an end to suffering akasi this is the past form of the root kar which means like karma to perform anta is an end and dukkha Dukasta means of suffering, and the long A is because it's combined with D. I should teach Pali as well, wouldn't that be fun? Right, and has made an end to suffering. So what does Bhikkhu Bodhi have to say? The ten fetters that must be destroyed to gain full deliverance have been enumerated in the introduction. Well, that's his introduction. Conceit is the conceit I am, which lingers in the mental continuum. The penetration of conceit means seeing through conceit and abandoning it, which are both accomplished simultaneously by the path of arahantship. The bhikkhu has made an end of suffering in the sense that he has put an end to the suffering of the round of samsara, what the dukkha. Indamavocha bhagava, thus, that is what the Blessed One said. The bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's word, as are we all. So that ends the Sabhasava Sutta. We can now say Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu. We have come to the end. Inamavocha Bhagava Atamana Deviku Bhagavato Basitangandanungti. So that's all for the Sabhasava Sutta. This is our second uh, session. And uh, well, if people keep coming out to it, I'll keep. Uh, Keep conducting this. We'll tr if anyone has any suggestions for our next sutta to study, please let me know. Otherwise, I'll try to think something up for next Saturday. Thank you all for tuning in, and I'm glad to see people are interested in these sorts of things. I hope it's been useful. So, peace. You don't have to quit with anything, do we? We do a little bit of meditation. Now let's do 10 minutes of meditation again. Just as a mean, and then we can uh, send our, we can project good thoughts to the universe. Wishing good, wishing well-being for all beings. Through our practice, through our study, may goodness come, may happiness come. Let's see here. Ten minutes. A little penguin meditator.
Thank you, Mati.